Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. And here's your host, Dan Perkins. Hello and welcome to this weekend edition of American Cannabis Conversation Weekend Update. I'm your host, Dan Perkins. As many of you know, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic Majority Leader in the Senate, introduced proposed draft legislation on cannabis reform. And that's what the industry's been talking about for the last two weeks. This show has three unusual guests who will come at this from three different perspectives. First, we have John Kajia, who is the Chief Knowledge Officer for New Frontier Data. He's going to explore what things are in the bill that we could be problematic to getting it passed. One of the things that John will talk about is that the progressive tax that the government wants to put on marijuana sales to up to 25% federal tax. Our next visitor is Dr. Jordan Tischler, who is our cannabis doctor on call. He's concerned about the bill because it doesn't address patients' needs and concerns. He told me that in 186 pages of the law, there is no discussion about protection and rights for patients. Our third expert is Morgan Fox of the National Cannabis Industry Association. And he was with us last week and he's continuing the story, this time talking about what to look for as this legislation tries to make its way through Congress. In our lifestyle section, Rich Wolkoff is going to meet and talk with Joanna Silver from the Emerald Cup of 2019 to talk about things that were projected there and how they've turned out two years later. There is an important amount of content on what's going on in Washington in this show. Tell your friends in the cannabis business or people who are interested in what's going on in cannabis to make sure they listen to this show. And you can send them to w420radionetwork.com to the archive section and listen to hundreds of shows if they want to. This is Dan Perkins. Now, let's get this show on the road. Welcome back to America's Cannabis Conversation. You're joining us today on the Discovery, Engage, and Compete section of the Cannabis Landscape presented by New Frontier Data, a global leader in cannabis data. Joining me today is their Chief Knowledge Officer, John Kajia, who's going to talk to us about the Schumer and uh, Booker bill, what it means and what's likely to happen. John, as always, welcome back to the program. So what do you think, John? So <laughs> as a longtime industry analyst, this is a very mixed bag both uh, for um, national cannabis policy and, and for both fledgling uh, U.S. legal cannabis industry. So the first big thing that the bill does is that it, it deschedules cannabis. So basically it takes it out of the Controlled Substances Act and puts it into a, a yet undetermined framework that would be governed by three agencies, the Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, the Food and Drug Administration, and the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Um, descheduling it you know, uh, at its face would be uh, a really important step in terms of almost immediately addressing things like the banking issue, because uh, by, with cannabis being a Schedule One substance, uh, cannabis businesses have not been able to participate in the financial markets because of uh, uh, IRS Section 280E. Um, and, and we don't need to get into the details of that, but, but that it, its classification as a controlled substance has prevented the cannabis industry from having full and fair participation in the free market, uh, the free financial market. 
However, there's a lot of questions around uh, particularly what the FDA's governance of cannabis is going to look like. And there's going to be a lot of uh, kind of uh, deferment to the agency in terms of uh, developing that regulatory protocol. Uh, but as we have seen with CBD, which remains in this really murky area, awaiting uh, the FDA's uh, judgment on things like whether CBD can be infused in, in uh, food products, uh, there's real potential implications here for uh, uh, federal um, regulations under the uh, FDA in particular, uh, creating some very consequential downstream implications for state-level markets and for state-level businesses. Um, there are some uh, kind of outstanding or uh, and long desired uh, uh, elements within this bill, including the, the mandate that um, you know the, both the Government and Accountability Office and the Department of Health and Human Services really invest in collecting data uh, around uh, research, uh, uh, data and research around the social, public, and medical. Uh, uh, impacts and implications of cannabis use. Um, uh, and, and that's positive. You know, the, the, there's been, uh, the U.S. has really lagged in uh, being a global leader in, in advancing cannabis research, and there's opportunity to do that uh, within this bill. Uh, but there's also some things that the industry is very, very concerned about, including this proposed tax rate, which would uh, uh, initiate uh, uh, would begin with a 10% excise tax um, uh, within the first year, and that would increase uh, uh, um, over a period of years to 25% by the end of the third year. Mm. Now, if you're in California and you're already paying nearly 50% tax uh, between the state and municipal taxes, and now the feds are saying they're going to add a potentially 25% tax on top of that, um, that is going to have material impact on consumers willing to, willingness to participate in the legal market um, when the, the uh, unregulated market could potentially be as much as 75% cheaper. Hmm. So, you know, th there's, a, there's a lot of nuance in this bill. And, and looking at just the headline that this is a bill to, uh, to um, you know, de-schedule de cannabis and essentially make it legal federally, I think this is some of the... Um, really critical and important uh, uh, elements within this bill that could have consequential impacts for uh, the cannabis industry as we know it. John, um, when Chuck Schumer became the majority leader of the Senate, he said uh, shortly uh, after the Democrats had the tie vote in the Senate that he believed that uh, he wanted to get legislation out this session, meaning uh, sometime okay. over the next two years. But now uh, he also said that he was not in favor of passing banking reform first because he believed that if banking reform was passed, it would dilute and confuse the, eshes, the, the rest of the issues related to decriminalization. Now, Cory Booker said last week that he intends to put himself on the floor, meaning theoretically laying on the floor, to block any passage of banking before they get to cannabis reform. So the two of the three sponsors of the bill have said, we're not in favor of 
banking reform, but it appears that an awful lot of people in the industry are interested in banking reform. There's a very interesting tension that is brewing. The liberal wing of the Democratic Party wants to see the most expansive um, form of federal cannabis uh, uh, reform that is possible. Uh, and that's understandable. This is an issue that they've been championing for, for decades. Um, however, to, to, for conservatives who, are, who have not come as far on this issue yet, um, they feel that you know, allowing free and fair access to, to the economic market is a good incremental step without necessarily inserting the federal government into the business of regulating cannabis. And um, it remains to be seen whether this bill in its current form uh, will be able to even secure passage uh, within the caucus, uh, within the Democratic Party, let alone uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, whether it will be able to bring in any Republicans to support it in its current form. Schumer um, yeah, even the, said this week that um, he didn't think he had the votes to pass it on the Democratic side. It, it, it's very, that. very difficult to see. Yeah, it's very difficult to see how this gets through. So even though there are things here that the, the Democrats would like, including um, the, the support for research, the, the descheduling, so the fact that this, this stops being um, uh, a, a controlled substance under the CSA, uh, and the restorative justice uh, uh, and opportunity program. So this idea that the federal government would actually try to put some, some funds toward helping people who've been impacted by the war on drugs to both expunge records and then provide support programs so that they're able to participate in the industry. Um, those are things that, that the Liberal caucus is, is very much in support of. But when you start looking at things like the excise tax re requirement, um, at 25% that's uh, in the states where it is already legal, which have moderately high tax rates, um, that's certainly a point of concern. There's an there's a, uh, interesting um, item here called the federal sales permit, um, in which in order to be a state-level operator, you'll need to apply to the federal government to get a permit before you can sell at the state level. And it's not impossible to envision a scenario where, uh, for example, if we end up with a very conservative administration um, in the next cycle, where they just stop issuing permits by saying, you know, the, there's enough cannabis business was already operating in the market. Um, and so there's, there's um, elements here that are creating tension within the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, there, there's going to need to be a lot of horse trading within the party in order to be able to, to refine this in a way that can uh, achieve party consensus. Um, I want to ask you a question uh, somewhat about what you're saying there, the, the challenge between the, par the sides of the party. M my, my feeling was that the enthusiasm for the fact that we're going to have a Democratic House and Senate and a Democratic president, many people who were in and follow the cannabis industry, I think were too um, Pollyannish in their expectations of what was going to happen. They, they, they weren't focusing on the example of the issues that you were talking about. They just felt that with a Democratic House and Senate and a Democratic president, we're going to get this done. And uh, hallelujah. And uh, damn the details. Let's just get it done. But it's the devil is in the details, and that's where it's it's running into roadblocks. 
That's absolutely right. And, and unfortunately, this is um, a function of lack of understanding of what federal governance actually means in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I think too many people's expectation was that the federal government would basically say, we are removing it from the Control Substances Act, but all of the other issues are going to be governed uh, uh, at the local level, at the state level. Um, but practically speaking, that's just not the way federal policymaking works. Uh, mm-hmm. There was no way that, that this would be taken out of the Controlled Substances Act, but given the recognition of cannabis as a quote-unquote drug, that there would not be then some federal intervention into governing this drug in American uh, society. So that introduces the, C- the FDA's involvement in, in, regulating, in, in regulating cannabis. And so it raises some really substantial questions, um, even foundationally around smokable cannabis products. Um, if the FDA takes control of, of regulating cannabis, uh, is the FDA essentially uh, going to be then asserting or affirming uh, the safety or lack of safety of smoking uh, a joint uh, relative to other uh, ingestion methods? And is there going to be uh, different types of reg- regulatory protocols or requirements uh, around combustible cannabis, which is the way in which the majority of consumers ingest the cannabis currently. Um, uh, the, 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 the role that the FDA is going to play in regulating this, uh, this industry, I think, is um, going to be a really critical point in, in, in this debate. And because the, the, that regulation, regulatory framework doesn't get instituted until this law passes. There's a lot of concern that by deferring that control to the FDA, then you end up in a situation where um, uh, the FDA starts uh, creating uh, policies that end up being uh, kind of foundational, incremental, or negatively impactful to the industry as it currently operates. Well, John, we just time for one more question. Um, uh, I, I believe what I'm about to say is is true. I I think that again another misconception. Criminal justice reform. My understanding is that the vast vast majority of people that are imprisoned over cannabis charges are state and local facilities, not federal facilities. So most of the incarceration is done at the state and local level. There are very few prisoners on the federal level. That's right. Um, and, and generally, the, the types of people who've been um, uh, intercepted at, at the federal level for cannabis offenses um, are operating at a very, very large scale. You know, the DA is genuine or um, going out and busting uh, street level dealers. That said, there is actually a clause in here that tries to get to that point. So, uh, at one level, it does include uh, a proviso to expunge records for people who've been. Uh, federally in kind of charged uh, or, or, or arrested, uh, uh, um, having their records expunged if, if it was a nonviolent cannabis uh, offense. But they also say that the federal government will support uh, state-level programs on the condition that the states create a framework to expunge their records at the at the state level. So there's an incentive mechanism there to try and get states to, to uh, do the record expungement and, and uh, kind of release of nonviolent offenders 
um, uh, at the state level, even though that is a domain that the, the federal government doesn't have direct control over. So basically, the federal government is saying, you know, in order to receive these funds, we expect you to take some steps to expedite the process of getting uh, the non-cannabis-only uh, offenders uh, both out of prison and have their records expunged. Yeah. We've been speaking with John Kachia, who is uh, the chief knowledge officer for New Frontier Data, one of our sponsors and sponsor of this segment, Discover, Engage, and Compete in the Cannabis Landscape. John, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Dan. Right. If you missed any of this terrific interview with John, you can go to W420RadioNetwork.com, go to the archive section, and listen to this show in full length, and click on many, many shows that John has been with us. So go to W420RadioNetwork.com, archive section to listen to this show and we'll be right back hello this is dan perkins with more information on the new frontier data software called equio let me ask you this question would the success of your business be impacted if you knew the frequency of visits customers spent in competitor stores of course it would the question is where do you go to get this information this is just one of the many pieces of information that you can get through the equio software available at newfrontierdata.com remember to click on the equio button and don't forget to ask for the special offer i'm dan perkins Welcome back to America's Cannabis Conversation, and joining us is one of our, I was going to say oldest, but that's not the best way to, uh, a gentleman who's been on our show more than any other guest, Dr. Jordan Tischler. He is our cannabis doctor on call. He's always got something to talk about, and uh, welcome to the show again, Jordan. Oh, it's, it's great to be back. I, I love being on the show with you. It's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. So Jordan sent me an email, said we should do a show on cannabis and uh uh he's never ever called me before or sent me a note said we should do this so he's obviously important to him so doctor tell us about what the issues are and what do you want to talk about well uh thank you for for uh giving me the floor to speak about this today i mean as probably um most of your listeners know uh the trio of democratic senators uh senator schumer wyden and booker introduced a bill this week uh, for the legalization of cannabis. And, um, and everybody is pretty excited about that. And frankly, I think it's a really nice uh, next step. But it is interesting to me um, that in this 168 pages worth of, of law and regulation, they don't take care of patients at all. They don't even address patients. I'm like, I'm sorry. I realize I have a slightly biased point of view being a physician, but it is beyond my comprehension how we can consider any legalization of cannabis without making uh, some provisions for the proper care of people who are actually sick and whose needs are not well served by a purely recreationally oriented market. And so I think that that's, that's a key thing that I wanted to talk about today. Well, that's the, uh, sure. Uh, I have no problem with that. I, I, uh, um, I'll, I'll admit to you that I read the, the document and um, it didn't cross my mind. But now that you brought it up, we should talk about it. Uh, I, I'm thinking, um, so w what are your concerns about the medical side? I, I guess is that would, would that be fair? You're, you're more concerned about how we're going to treat people on the medical side as opposed to the recreational side. 
Well, you know, the, the bill itself doesn't contemplate a medical size, right? I mean, I think that we're used to thinking in sort of three sides, if you will, right? There's sort of a recreational side. There's a medical side of cannabis, and then perhaps uh, there's a sort of scant pharmaceutical side that perhaps uh, under some form of legalization will start to increase as science is done. But, you know, there are really kind of those three components. And uh, this bill, you know, focuses on uh, making cannabis no longer illegal, which is good. It focuses on uh, social justice issues for people of color, uh, and, uh, and imple- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, implements or, or demands implementation of, uh, certain taxes in order to fund a trust fund that will be used for the betterment of people of color who've been harmed by prohibition. And I think all of those things are good, but that's really kind of as far as it gets. And there's just absolutely no discussion about healthcare. And I, I get wigged out about that because, first of all, I don't think that the recreational market does patients any good at all. Um, and it, um, it it overlooks the fact that, you know, in the United States, there are over 180 million Americans over the age of 80, uh, 55, rather, who will, not may, will all develop one or more conditions that are amenable to treatment with cannabis and cannabinoid medicine. So we can say that that healthcare in general is a social justice issue, and in particular, when we talk about cannabis, it's a huge issue because it affects so many Americans' lives, or potentially so, if we make the regulations such that this can actually be done in a medical fashion. I think that Americans have not even sort of really begun to understand the, the fullness of how many people's illnesses can be addressed this way because at the moment, you know, most patients don't kind of want to talk about this publicly. Um, and frankly, most physicians uh, are sort of open to the idea, but not like deeply steeped in this as a, as a medicine. And so there's a, there's a lack of conversation at this point, uh, both nationally and also between physicians and their patients about, you know, what can cannabis really do for them? But in the meantime, we don't want regulations out there that make that conversation basically impossible or meaningless, right? So we really do need to implement a way for patients to get cannabis care as well as cannabis medicine. Like anybody can go down and buy a joint, but that's not really a very good approach to most medical care. We've talked about that many, many times. Uh, Yes, we have. You know, so... As you know, and as your listeners who've, who've heard me before know, uh, I, I founded an organization called the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists. Uh, we're a group of doctors and other health professionals and interested people who are focused on uh, using cannabis and cannabinoids as medicine and providing good and proper care to patients. And from our perspective, this bill just, it just didn't even touch it. Um, so we have written a platform, uh, this is actually a few years ago, that really describes what it is that we think needs to happen on the federal level in order for patient care to go in the right direction. So are you going to take it out of uh, mothballs and, and, and dress it up and send it off again? 
Oh, hell yeah. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> it's been out there uh, and we send it to people. And thankfully, we, we have a lobbyist whose name is Tammy Wall and she's well connected. And so we're right now sort of at that at that point where um, we're getting it out there. We've got an op-ed that we're, we're working on right now. We've got letters to these various senators going. Um, so, yes, there's a, a large um, effort here to make sure that those who are in power here, that they, they kind of miss the boat for the largest group of Americans. Yeah, and I, I want to ask you a question, but I don't want to put you on the spot. So if you if you choose not to answer, it's okay. I just wanted to one of the probably the second most listened to person that on this show in his tenure is Morgan Fox from the the represent, Washington representative for the National Cannabis Industry Association. Have you talked mm. to any of those groups about joining your effort? Um, that group in particular, no, um, though I would certainly welcome a discussion. Um, their focus typically is very much on the sort of commercial side of things, which, you know, doesn't necessarily intersect with our interests very often, except to, you know, get some uh, consensus on the way the industry should be treating patients. So I think it would be lovely to have a conversation with them. There are other uh, groups out there like the uh, United Patients Group that we have close relationships with, um, and uh, Americans for Safe Access uh, is somebody that is a group that, that we're, we're fond of and are looking forward to working with on this. But, yes, you're right. This is going to have to be a, a broader coalition than, than just the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists. So I'll promise you I will make an email introduction to you, to Morgan, within the next day or so, and the two of you can hook up and see how he can help you do what you're trying to do. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see if we can be of any help. Yeah, no, I can. That's great. I'd be happy to do that you for know, you. There are a couple of key points in this document or platform that I, you know, that I think are worth reiterating. Um, okay. And, you know, maybe in the hope that some of your listeners, uh, you know, can call their senators or maybe their senators are even listening. Um, but, you know, one of the key things is that I think that it's important that we develop a prescription system. You know, as your listeners know right now, the doctors make a recommendation, which is essentially like we just say yes or no, you can have a card. No, you can't have a card. Um, and that has given rise to a lot of uh, uh, groups uh, of physicians who are not practicing medicine. They're just taking some money and giving people cards. We call those people card mills, and I think that that's absolute malpractice. Um, and we need to go beyond that. We need to get to the point where the people practicing this kind of medicine are doing it you know, with, with appropriate knowledge and good faith and taking care of their patients properly. And one of the ways to effectuate that is to have physicians write prescriptions. And you say, well, what does that do? Well, you know what? If you have to write a prescription, not just, eh, go talk to a bud tender, but, like, you know, actually, like, I think you need, you know, this kind of a, a cannabis product, and I want you to take this much at this time of day, et cetera, that makes that doctor sit up and, number one, know what they're talking about, and, number two, take ownership, right? You're responsible for that prescription and for that patient's care. And I think that that's a really important step in getting doctors to become properly educated about this and to, and to provide the kind of medical care that we would expect in other fields of medicine, which I don't see why it should be different here. 
Then, of course, you, we also need the dispensaries and the bud tenders to actually honor that prescription and not change things and mislead patients and, and derail the, the treatment program because ultimately that gets in the way of patients getting the care that they need. I'm sorry, you started to ask something. No, no, that, that's fine. That's fine. No, I agree with you. Uh, I, I'm curious, um, since I never went to medical school, um, uh, but I have doctor friends like you, uh, in today, in, in, in Harvard Medical School, where students are learning to become physicians, do they teach any courses on cannabis? Um, not at the moment. They do actually talk. I mean, there's a lot of people out there saying, you know, the doctors don't even hear about the endocannabinoid system. And that's not true any longer. Um, it's not, you know, it's not like they get their own course on it, but mm -hmm. it is certainly brought up in the basics of pathology, uh, pathophysiology. Um, you know, it's also true that these large academic institutions tend to move, move fairly slowly. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and their individuals have as much bias uh, as anyone else. So I think that there's still this sort of general sense, you know, that cannabis is, is you know, a recreational drug and that sort of thing. And it's, you know, that's slowly changing. As you know, Harvard University is deeply involved uh, with, uh, the, you know, science of this and, and doing that research, but it's at the molecular level. Um, there's not as much discussion as I would like uh, on the clinical level, although I have been in some very interesting uh, discussions with the medical school um, that really took about three years of run-up, but now is actually sort of coming to something in which we discuss putting together a continuing medical education course, not aimed so much at medical students, but really aimed at practicing uh, physicians and other clinicians to bring them up to speed on this as a medicine. And the fact that I'm able to have this discussion with them at this point and that their major concerns are, okay, how do we do this properly, not, oh, my God, we have to talk to the lawyers, I think that this is a great step forward, and I'm really excited about this project. Um, obviously, I can hear in your voice. Is it something that a woman could read and understand? I'm sorry. Your could you ask that question in a second, then? Sure. Is your proposal something that a layman could read and understand? Um, you know, we haven't written it just yet, and by we I mean me. Uh, but uh, but the intention really is to focus on on teaching docs, um, and you know, so I would never tell um, a layperson not to read it. But I also want to be able to address the the target audience at the level and with the depth that they need in order to feel like we're having a legitimate and credible discussion. Um, so, you know, there are lots of um, educational um, uh, programs out there that are really more aimed at lay people, but this one thing that I'm talking about at the moment sort of has that more professional mission. Um, okay. And did, in your profession... I'm sorry, your professional website, does it have information for consumers on it? Um, on In the organization, you mean the, the association? Yeah. Yes. yes, there's all kinds of good stuff on the association uh, website uh, that's aimed at, all, you know, at, at, the, at consumers. Uh, so 
there's a, if you actually if you go to the very uh, front page, which is canaspecialist.org, canaspecialist plural dot org, um, and you scroll down a little bit, there are a whole bunch of videos that are right there uh, that talk about um, everything from you know this is what you need to know about the basics of cannabis as medicine. Um, why do we feel that you know medical care is important? Um, there's a whole bunch of them. I can't even remember how many there are, uh, and they're all aimed at uh, at a level where everyone can can understand them. Jordan, as always, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we'll uh, just give that website one more time for the group where they can get the information. Sure, it's canaspecialist.org. Canaspecialist.org. Thank you for your passion, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. You're, you bet. Um, if you missed any of this terrific interview with Dr. Jordan, you can go to W420RadioNetwork.com, go to the archive section, and look for today's show. And you can see many, many different interviews of, of Dr. Jordan over the last two and a half years. You'll learn a lot. Hello, this is Dan Perkins for America's Cannabis Conversation, and I want to tell you about a new sponsor, New Frontier Data, and their Equio amazing software to help you discover, engage, and compete in the cannabis marketplace. For the first time, you have the ability to discover on your computer desktop valuable information on state, city, and even zip codes to assess your opportunities for cannabis investment in that market. Through the Engage portion, you will be able to figure out what products in a marketplace consumers would be interested in buying. And finally, with Compete, you'll be able to look at prospect profiles and find new and innovative opportunities to test new products to attract new customers. Significant change is coming in the cannabis industry, and you need to get ready now and be prepared for this fantastic opportunity ahead of you. For more information on the EQO software for your business, go to newfrontierdata.com and look for the EQO section and expand your horizons. I'm Dan Perkins. Welcome back to the conversation. Joining us today is our old friend and multi, multi, multi contributor Morgan Fox from the National Cannabis Industry Association. We had him on recently to talk about what was going on in Congress with the Senate bill being introduced by Chuck Schumer and uh, uh, Cory Booker. And we thought it would be a good idea to ask him to come back and let's talk a little bit about what do we do, what do we do now, and what what are what's reasonable for us to expect that could happen over some period of time. So first of all, welcome back to the conversation, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, I think the question that I, um, as I look at the landscape, uh, do you think it's possible to get any legislation passed in this session? I do. Um, you know, I'm very, very, very cautiously optimistic that uh, um, we might be able to convince uh, enough Republicans to support comprehensive uh, reform in the Senate uh, while uh, not alienating uh, too many Democrats. Uh, but that is much more of a heavier lift than some of the more incremental reforms that uh, are being offered right now. Um, you know, if I really was, you know, a betting man, I would say that there, the votes exist right now to pass the uh, the Safe Banking Act. Uh, but 
unfortunately, it's uh, not going to get brought up for consideration probably until uh, Chuck Schumer's comprehensive bill is officially introduced. Um, but there are a number of other issues that are definitely moving uh, pretty quickly, particularly when you look at appropriations. Um, admittedly, uh, those are just temporary measures, but uh, we're looking at uh, the, uh, you know, there's not going to be any debate on um, the uh, appropriations rider that prevents the Department of Justice from interfering with uh, medical cannabis programs at the state level. Um, there probably will be some debate about whether to extend that to uh, adult use programs, uh, but we've seen in practice that that's not particularly uh, you know, necessary because the Department of Justice has not been using resources to go after uh, state legal adult use or medical programs. However, having it enshrined in law, even if it's only temporary under uh, an appropriations bill, uh, is still important. Uh, but we're also looking at uh, a number of other uh, potential uh, changes, such as um, getting the, uh, the D.C. rider that prevents uh, the D District of Columbia from being able to regulate cannabis for adult use uh, permanently removed in the, uh, the next appropriations bill, which uh, would be a big plus for yours truly, uh, but also would, I think, uh, be very good at uh, helping us to educate lawmakers about what regulated cannabis systems look like uh, while they're on Capitol Hill. Uh, you know, when you can show people an example of what a legal cannabis store looks like and, like, show them the seed-to-sale tracking process uh, firsthand, if they don't happen to have that in their state, it makes it much easier to convince them of the viability of regulating cannabis responsibly. Um, there's also a number of other changes that are being considered, such as um, removing uh, a past cannabis uh, conviction or current cannabis use as a uh, – uh, disqualifier for citizenship or as a uh, method to trigger deportation uh, uh, and also to uh, uh, prevent uh, cannabis professionals from countries where it's legal from uh, traveling to the United States, which has definitely happened. Um, you know, I've, I've heard horror stories of people from Canada coming to the U.S. for conferences, and when uh, Border Patrol finds out that they work in the legal cannabis industry, they're banned for life. Um, mm. So we want to try to make sure that that uh, gets removed, and that looks like it's something that might possibly be able to be addressed either in standalone legislation or in uh, appropriations. Uh, and then we've got uh, issues particularly related to research and uh, perhaps even more importantly, uh, access to uh, veterans through the VA system. So right. there's definitely some things that can move in the current session. Um, it is going to be a long shot to pass something that is uh, – uh, comprehensive descheduling in the current session, but it's not impossible. Uh, it's much more possible for us to be able to pass more incremental uh, reforms, either as standalone legislation or through appropriations this year. So the, one of the questions that's, that's coming up or, or is being raised is that the, the tenuous nature of both houses under the control uh, of the, uh, the Democrats, and the only, the only way the Democrats have control of the Senate is that they get a tie. And there are at least three Democrats who have raised serious questions about the uh, decriminalization of cannabis. You've got to have some people come over from the Republican Party. My question is that I'm starting to hear rumors now that um, the, a lot of the president's agenda, legislative agenda is in trouble. And uh, AOC said recently, uh, if you don't give us certain things that we want, uh, we'll tank the appropriations bill. So my question is, if if we continue this narrow majority, and and their defectors on the Democratic side, is possible that nothing gets done 
up until the 2022 election, a little over a year from now. And it might be an issue in the election, which may shift the leadership of both the House and the Senate back to Republican. Does that affect the passage of major reform? Well, I mean, it's definitely something that uh, Democratic lawmakers should be thinking about, Um, not only because these – like cannabis policy reform does enjoy uh, more bipartisan support than a lot of other issues and is something that uh, people on both sides of the aisle can support without facing a lot of political backlash from their constituents. Uh, But uh, if you look at just the overall numbers, uh, you know, obviously Democrats support uh, cannabis policy reform at uh, greater rates than Republicans. And if you look at it historically, Pretty much every time in the past 30, 40 years that uh, a Democrat has uh, taken the presidency, uh, the following midterm, both chambers of Congress uh, switch back to Republican control, which would significantly slow down uh, the progress that we've been making with cannabis policy reform because it's less supported uh, among that party and with uh, them in control of uh, issues like uh, you know, which uh, which bills get hearings in uh, in key committees and things like that. It could uh, really really slow things down significantly. And uh, honestly, I think that from a political standpoint, um, Democrats are going to have to do something that is at least somewhat notable, even if it's not uh, you know uh, monumental for all of their constituents. Uh, in order to be able to maintain control of even one chamber of Congress. And Canvas is a perfect vehicle for them to do that. And if they don't do it before the midterms, then, you know, the chances of uh, actually passing, like, really meaningful reform are going to decrease. And so that um, uh, there are some people that say if if the Democrats lose control of the House and the Senate in 2022, their prospects for the presidency in 2024 uh, may be diminished, and as a result – reform in cannabis may be four years out after the 2024 election if a Republican gets in? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, this has always been a congressional issue, not a presidential issue. So, um, you know, whoever happens to be in in the White House, I don't think is nearly as important as who is in control of Congress. Okay. Uh, Recently, uh, Joe Biden has said uh, after the uh, I guess within minutes of the announcement by uh, Chuck Schumer that uh, the White House is still not sure that they're convinced they want to support the uh, the Safe Banking Act. What's, what's going on there? You know, I, I don't think that the administration has uh, really completely come around on this issue. And I believe that he was speaking about the, uh, uh, the Schumer bill, not the Safe Banking Act in particular, but uh, I might have missed that. Um, but regardless, um, you know, while... Biden clearly does not want to come out as a cheerleader for this issue. I find it hard to imagine a world in which he would veto such legislation where it come to his desk. Mm, okay. So in the last couple of minutes, we've got what should we begin to follow to see whether this is how this is going to proceed? I mean, that's a pretty broad question. I mean, as uh, as I said earlier, the uh, uh, the comment period is going to be open until uh, September 1st. And then um, I think that it will be uh, – the best place to, uh, uh, to watch will be to see uh, how quickly uh, an actual uh, piece of legislation is introduced, um, probably – I'm thinking around, like, you know, early uh, or late October. And then uh, once that happens, I think that it will be very, very important to watch whether or not uh, things like the Safe Banking Act are granted uh, committee hearings. And uh, that's something that we're going to be working on pretty heavily uh, while we're also working on improving and uh, 
amending the uh, uh, the CAOA. Do you think that there's a, uh, any possibility that the the comment period gets extended, pushing it back further? I, I mean, I, I I suppose it's possible, but I don't see any indications that that would happen right now. And I mean, to tell you the truth, I think that they're going to get a flood of comments already. So uh, I I don't know if they're necessarily going to need to extend it. They're going to have more than enough uh, input uh, just in the window that exists now. Are you getting any sense of what the comments are? Well, uh, as I said, we're uh, we're analyzing that bill and uh, talking with our uh, our stakeholders and uh, uh, committee members uh, to see where there's shortcomings, where there's areas of improvement, uh, if there's anything that we can oppose. I know that uh, already the uh, the tax rates are kind of raising a lot of red flags because it starts out as a 10% uh, federal tax rate and then steadily moves up to a 25% tax rate after five years. Um, wow. Now, admittedly. Uh, the fact that 280E will no longer be a problem does kind of alleviate that a little bit. And there's also a provision that allows for a 50% federal tax deduction if you, uh, if your company makes uh, less than $20 million a year, uh, which is most cannabis companies. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, those kind of alleviate some of the concerns, but uh, really like high taxes like that, especially when you look at the insanely high uh, rates of uh, taxation at the state and local level and the already existing high barriers to entry to even get into the industry are certainly concerning if we want to try to uh, um, transition into a, a completely regulated market and uh, diminish the, uh, the presence of the unregulated market as much as possible. Um, but Aside from that, I think that there's probably a lot of uh, real big questions about some of the details regarding federal regulation. Uh, but, again, those are still issues that we're trying to parse through, and uh, we'll hopefully be providing feedback uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks once we've really had a chance to uh, dive into the details and consulted all of our uh, members and experts. So if I understand what you were saying, you, you're saying that uh, a few minutes ago, you're saying that the control would move over to the FDA and the ATF? Uh, Did I... The FDA, uh, the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, would be the uh, the primary uh, uh, regulatory bodies for uh, legal commerce. And then uh, the ATF would basically be uh, in charge of anything that is uh, in violation of that. Uh, but the exact interplay of how that works is kind of still in question. So that's something that we're exploring and are going to be suggesting uh, gets a little bit more clearly spelled out in the uh, legislation itself. Well, thank you for helping us, giving us some pointers to look for what's going to happen. It's going to be a very interesting summer and perhaps into the fall and into the next year. We've been joined today by Morgan Fox from the National Cannabis Industry Association, speaking about cannabis reform as introduced by Chuck Schumer and Corey Bucker this week. Morgan, thanks for joining us as always. Thank you. You're welcome. If you missed any of this terrific interview with Morgan, you can go to W420RadioNetwork.com, go to the archive section, and you can listen to this show and many, many shows that Morgan's been on, and his contact information will be with that. This is Dan Perkins. We'll be right back.
Hello, this is Dan Perkins, and I've got a question for you. If you knew what your customers wanted, would you be more successful? Of course you would, but how can you obtain this valuable information for your success? If you use the Engage portion of the Equio software from New Frontier Data, you won't need to guess what customers want to buy. Guessing can be very challenging and expensive, and more often than not, non-productive. If you want to find out what customers want, then go to NewFrontierData.com and click on the Equio button, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Time now for the lowdown on another high-time experience. Here's 420 Lifestyle Correspondent Rich Walkoff. Emerald Cup 2019 Santa Rosa. We're in the epicenter of the weed world worldwide, right? And here we are, Joanna Silver, author of the upcoming book, Growing Weed in the Garden. It sounds oxymoronic because we don't want weed in our garden. But now... If it's a new weed, we really want weed in our garden. So what's this all about, young lady? Well, we want it in our garden, and we want it outdoors. And no no grow lights, no fancy equipment, just growing it like a plant, like the rest of the plants in our garden, because we can. Right, and the sun-grown is the best grown, despite contentions of some uh, indoor growers, correct? I mean... Look, I am a gardener. I am a in-the-dirt gardener. I worked at Sunset Magazine for 10 years, started in their garden, and became the head of the garden department. So to me, a garden is outdoors, and whatever that other thing that is being done, I can't call it a garden. Right, right, I right. piss some people off with that, but I'm really interested in outdoor cultivation. Yeah, and, and, and we had a physicist on, a plasma physicist, earlier in our program here at the Emerald Cup, speaking exactly to that point. You don't get all the UV, A, and B rays that the natural sun provides when you have grow lights in indoor facilities. So let's talk about weed in the garden. You're writing a book about this coming out in March. Well, what's so unique about your take on weed in the garden? So um, I uh, was asked by the San Francisco Chronicle to grow weed in the garden and document it as a gardener. That's a tough job. Yeah, it was super hard. I mean, the truth is I said to my editor there I don't know where to get I don't even know where to get seeds and she said that's your opening line um it was right on the cusp of legalization and so I am a you know seasoned gardener and garden writer and so um to approach weed I am not a weed grower I knew nothing about it but I can use my um knowledge base about how to grow plants and interview people who are experts and it turns out it's really not that hard um and my approach is um very simplified I I think there's a lot of weird stuff, weird practices around cultivation that have happened because of prohibition. I mean, even just the lingo is weird. Like um, the fact that we call it clones, they're vegetative cuttings, you know, they're cuttings or this whole thing about vegging and flowering is not a, those aren't terms we use anywhere else in gardening. Um, And so there's just a lot of weird lingo and a lot of weird practices, I think, from having been grown mostly indoors for the last hundred years. Okay, well, cut to the chase. What can you impart to the novice layman who wants to learn how to grow or begin their own little weed in the garden that would be instrumental? It's super easy. Um, I encourage people to start from seed versus clone. Super easy. Start seeds. Um, it grow, It's drought tolerant. It grows quickly. Like It's like a tomato plant, warm season annual, one and done. Um, and the, the post-processing is where the 
the like a bit of the hard part comes in you know just making sure you're harvesting at the right time and drying but even that is can be much much simplified from what you hear and um really to follow your nose to grow things probably based on names that sound appealing to start there as you find what you like and really to not believe anyone of what they tell you it's going to do to you it's really really subjective okay when you say start from seed now germinating that seed is not necessarily that easy it's so easy sorry Go it's ahead. so easy. Well, you know a lot more about okay. it than I. People get really scared of seeds, even in non-cannabis gardening. It freaks them out. It's like something a little bit too magical. And while it is a little bit magical, seeds are super easy. You cover it with some dirt. You don't. You can do this outdoors. Cover it with some dirt, water it, it grows. So long as you can keep that seed bed moist as the seeds are germinating, you're done. When you get a, when you start cannabis from seed, you get a really strong tap root that's going to make a really really strong plant. And you get um, no disease in that, and you get a very forgiving plant, a plant that like you can sort of thrash around for the first couple months. Whereas if you get a clone from a dispensary, no taproot, um, high high probability of some more disease going on in it, and it's not actually even though it's a small plant, it's a not a young seedling. It's a it's a cutting of an old mom. Oh, that's bad. I'm a young mom. I don't want to be trashing old moms. But it's an old, haggard mom who's um, pretty finicky and can sort of snap into flowering very quickly. So anyway, start from seed. Super easy. You get way more choice of what you're going to grow. I mean, it's the same with, like, tomatoes, right? If, you, if you're going to do seedlings, you're going to get it from whatever they have at the store. Whereas seeds, the sky's the limit with what you choose to grow. Now, you keep referencing tap roots which I've heard before, so instrumental in the health and growth of your plant. Explain a little bit about that botanically. So a taproot um, shoots straight down and does um, a really excellent job of up, um, taking up nutrients as well as anchoring the plant into the ground. So it just makes for like a really, really sturdy, strong, healthy plant. Um, all of my plants that I've started from seed have grown a lot bigger and um, produced more than my ones grown from clone. It's a beautiful plant. As a gardener, not not a big user, to be totally honest. I had so much. I've had so much fun with the smells. It's like it's unlike anything else in the garden. I mean, truly. This is a magical aroma. As an aficionado, I would uh, say it's beautiful to me too. But here at the Emerald Cup, they are selling seeds for really pricey dollars. <laughs> Just for a, a handful. I know it's crazy, right? It reflects the it, it reflects the history of it having been illegal. Um, I think that the prices need to come down, frankly. Um, well, supply and demand, perhaps. Or you're talking about how important it is to get from seed. So, hence, uh, there's more demand for that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's they've been able to charge that much, and so they're still charging that much and. Breeding is breeding is hard work, especially in an industry where it was it was illegal and any record keeping would be adding to your sentence. I mean, it was very clandestine work to be breeding and doing it well. But I think the prices should come down. Okay, so what strains did you work with? What strains were easiest to grow or more challenging? So first of all, we should be using the word cultivar, not strain. That's another wonky leftover from prohibition. Strains are terms for bacteria and flu. In the growing world, it would be cultivar. What cult? So cultivar. Yeah, so I'm hearing that word for so the first it's never time. Gonna, I'm never. I'm not going to be the one to um, clean that up. But hell, I'm going to try because mm -hmm. it annoys me to no end. Okay. Um. So I grew. I. I have so far stuck with ones that I like the names of. 
for example, blueberry muffin and mango trees and these very fruity ones have sounded like appropriate to be in my garden. Um, and my favorite one, I mean, the terpenes on blueberry muffin are unlike anything I've ever had. They taste, they smell like a blueberry that is baking in a baked good available from the Humboldt Seed Company. Um, this year I'm going to grow something called Freak Show. Also from Humboldt Seed Company. I hate the smell of it. Sorry, guys. It smells weird. But its leaves are unlike any... They don't look like cannabis leaves. And I'm I'm into the aesthetic of all of this. And I also... I'm going to be growing for Leafly, um, the cannabis website, and d- doing a whole grow journal. And I've decided I want to grow the weird... Like, I'm no longer sticking to the fruity names. Like, give me green crack. Give me, you know, AK-47. Give me the ones that, like, don't sound friendly. I choose on name. I don't choose on like, this is going to make you do this. Cause well, I, you may be the only grower I ever heard choose his, his or her cultivator by, by name or smell versus the wallop or the feel or sensation. Well, I think that it's all okay. For me as a user, I am very one note. I am a lightweight. And weed makes me want to clean something and maybe dance a little bit while I'm cleaning the thing. That's it. So, like, if it says it's going to make me sleep, I'm cleaning and I'm dancing. If you could be like Cinderella. Yes, it's that's it. Like, it's very one note. So, I, I, I also think that it's, um, it's really subjective. All these descriptions of what it's going to do to you, I think it's bogus. I do. So, at least that is my experience. So, why not choose on smell? I grow, you know, Gertrude Jekyll Rose based on smell. Of course, I'm going to grow other plants based on smell. Okay. So what other tips from the gardener from uh, your upcoming book, Growing Weed in the Garden, can you impart? Do you trim? Do you top? Do you leave the leaves? Yeah. So absolutely. A lot of the um, overly complicated pruning practices are also sort of, as you were saying earlier, indoors, you're, you're, you know, having to modulate for having these grow lights just above, whereas the sun moves right? So you actually can do a lot less pruning because the sun moves throughout the day and hits all of the leaves and all of the buds. I do top. Um, I, I top the plants to get bushier growth and to prevent having one big Christmas tree bud, which like looks so cool. And your brother's finally like, you did something cool, Joanna, but it's just a bit harder to dry. Um, so I, I top and then I do a few more like selective little pinching, but no, other than that, I really leave the, the, the leaves on. If I get super bored, maybe I'll pick some off, but I'm lazy, lazy gardening, compost, a bunch of compost in the beginning. I don't switch up the fertilizer when it starts flowering. Like, no, I just give it like anything else in my garden, in my annual bet that, you know, is one and done. I give it a ton of compost in the beginning and I call it a day. Now, I always thought it was more science than art. You're giving me the impression it's more art than science. Okay. What other little tidbits for the uh, layman grower? In the cannabis world. Well, the one thing, if you do start from seed and if you don't get feminized seed, then you have to sex your plants, which is like, when I heard that that is even a term, I was like, okay, sign me up. That's so cool. What? Um, Because the plant is dioecious. There are males and females. That's super rare in the plant world, even more rare in the edible world. And um, so you get to learn how to tell the difference between male and female. And it's very easy and it's really fun. And you get to tell your friends that you sexed your plants. Well, tell me more. 
Um, it gets even better. Ready? The females, their little pre-flower are these little hairs, and the males are, you guys don't know this really, the males are balls. They grow a little pair of balls. Okay. <laughs> this this is it. so uncharted territory. Keep yeah. going. No, that's it. And then you can tell from a pretty early stage so that you're not dumping more and more resources. So you want to castrate the male and uh, enhance the female. It. You get you rid of the male. Get rid of it. Yeah. Unless you want to make seeds. So yeah. Why do you think I like this activity? No. Yeah. You're after unpollinated female flowers. That's what you want. Okay. And that's how you determine. Look for the balls in your weed. You heard it here first. That's Look for the balls. Joanna Silver with this uh, earth-shattering, pioneering philosophy, growing weed in the garden, coming out March 24th, and more pearls of wisdom. But it's great catching up with you and meeting you today, and uh, I never knew the things I just learned great. in the last 15 minutes. The Emerald Cup 2019 and W420 Radio. Rich Walcott here in Santa Rosa. Hope you're digging it. W420radionetwork.com.